0: Hello to all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 4 of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters.
1: Hi, I'm Emily.
0: And I'm Sophie. Each week we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges.
1: That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing.
2: Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power.
0: After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives.
1: It's our mission to prove that
0: meaningful conversations,
1: even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience
2: and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life.
0: And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. So, hello, Trini Woodall. You are a friend of mine, and we've really connected through friendship, but also quite a lot professionally. We have quite a kind of deep affection for each other. So it's a it's a real delight that you're on the Therapy Works podcast today. And I mean, you're incredibly well-known, but for those that want to be reminded, you are a businesswoman and an entrepreneur, a TV presenter, an author, and you have a new book out mid-September called Fearless. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I thought maybe I'd start with what is a particular challenge you're Facing or have had to overcome, and I wondered if it was linked to fearless to the to your new book.
3: I think it is. I mean, the idea of what fearless represents in your life is interesting because I grew up with a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's a wonderful book, which I'm sure you know, Julia. And being fearless is that to be fearless to feel the fear and do it anyway? Yes, it damn well is. I should think. I've had many times in my life where I've felt full of fear, paralysed by fear. And, you know, I wouldn't know which one to choose, really, because they're all very different things. There's my fear of around being a businesswoman. There's a fear around being a mother. So I don't know. I think I need you to ask the question more specifically. The cha- The challenge
0: that I would love to explore with you is... Given that you may feel fear about the things that most preoccupy you, which is being a mum and being a woman in the world and being an entrepreneur, and I would link that to your dynamism, that you're a striver, you push. You know, you push forward. One thing stops, you keep pushing. And I was wondering, is your fear of fear linked to your
3: striving, that you have to keep pushing to keep the fear at bay? (laughs) I don't think my fear fear of being fearful is that strong. But am I scared I'm going to feel fearful? No, I don't think I'm that person. You know, I went yesterday to a tech conference and I always feel a a minority in that room being a woman and also that there are people in the room I really respect and admire and I feel how significant is my contribution. And I always start those days off feeling that. And I was also doing some talks at it and I was feeling, God, everyone else on the panel is so much more successful than me. Just to clarify, is that a type of imposter syndrome or is it? I I hesitate to use that word, Julia, because I find that putting labels on us makes the burden Mm. even more. When you feel uncomfortable because you don't know enough, so you feel you don't have a voice I feel there's elements of that that are in in that what they call imposter syndrome. So whenever I speak to people around it for giving them help or thinking about myself, it's about how do I gain more knowledge so I don't feel that uncomfortable in that situation? And how do I also remember what I know? I think we forget what we know when we're full of fear. So walking into this thing yesterday, I forget that the business is done really well. I forget that people are interested in what I have to say. And what I do is the thing that I think we all do when we feel that feeling the most is we compare the exterior of somebody with our interior. When that's really heightened, that's when I feel do I have the right to be in the room and the right to have a voice. But then that thing of when you asked earlier about do I thrive on this feeling or does that propel me? I intellectually think those things But if you met me, you wouldn't think I was thinking them because I'd just push through. So I have this thing, the two run in tandem. I'll feel them internally, but I will still push through. And I don't know where that comes from. That is Susan Jeffers, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, so that you're aware
0: of comparing your internal feeling, like do I know enough? You know, am I legitimate? Have I got something to say? And you compare it with what people look like on the outside. But you also hold and can remind yourself intellectually, even if you don't feel it. I actually have a lot of stuff to say. I have actually got decades of experience, and I have also got the fastest-growing beauty business in Europe. So people are going to be interested. But your mechanism of dealing with it, which must come directly from your childhood,
3: is to push through. It isn't. You don't get paralysed. It's a sticky topic because... You are a therapist, and it's something that I never like to look at. And whenever I've been in rehab or whatever, it's like, let's look at your childhood. You know, you know, people have different things that happen in their childhood that do affect them as adults, and I definitely know that things don't just happen overnight. But what's interesting is, because I like to intellectualize things, I always find it really difficult to think, well, what could it have been that made that happen? So it could be, I went to boarding school really young. So I had to push on through there because I didn't have a mother around from six and a half. So I think probably I would say that I had to look after myself from that age or just not have a mother around all the time.
0: And so that you learned to be self-reliant and you had this mechanism that could push through and you learned that super young... And there's also something about that mechanism in the pushing that feels to me like it then had a trajectory of its own where you just keep
3: pushing. Every time something happens, you go to a next thing. There, there's something in this keep pushing, which is the negative, um, the bit I don't like, which is when you are in a keep pushing mode, you don't take a step back and enjoy your life so much. And I think that's a realisation I'm getting to age 59 of, and we've discussed this, how much time we have in our life to enjoy the things we want to do. And because I've never, to this point in my life, thought I've only got X number of years left. I've never had that that thought process. And I have some friends, you know, who are reaching 60, and they sort of say, plan for your pension training because you might only have 25 summers left. And I'm going, what the fuck? I mean, That's such an inconceivable way for me to think, you know, on every single level. It it horrifies me. There's an element of very good practicality in it. There's the fact if you have children, you need to do some financial planning, all those things. But that intellectual idea, I just think it scares me, Julia, actually, when one thinks like that, because I spent all my time living in the moment and powering through. It's like what I really want to learn over the next year is how do I change that a bit so I can not just power through, but really enjoy it because I'm always powering. Through. Even when I'm on holiday, I'm in a rush sometimes, you know? And I'm I, i I'm doing meditation. I do the car map three mornings out of seven. Um, But I do realize somewhere good. there has to be that shift to not be rushing somewhere all the time. As that, as your challenge, as it were,
0: is a really... Interesting one. If you're in a heightened state, you're in flight or you're running away from in fear, so it doesn't matter which way you're doing it, you're going fast and you're moving in an environment that in some way feels under threat, that you have to keep running. So, in some ways, the work for you is recognizing that you are finally at 59, nearly 60, in a place of safety. And in that place of safety, is where you can play, where you can let go, where you can be happy doing nothing, where you can believe there's not scarcity, but abundance. Because the feeling I get is that there isn't enough, and I recognize it because it's in me too. So, I mean, I I did the same process about six months ago of why do I keep setting myself another target? Why do I keep pushing? What is that about? And with me, some of it I really recognize from my childhood and some of it is habit. And some of it is, I think what you said at the beginning, is letting yourself know what you do really have and embracing that and giving yourself the time and the space to adjust your mindset to inform you, I am safe now.
3: I feel I've heard you say those words once before um to me and i don't know if i've had a conversation with you on it but it's cited like i don't know how to start because if you look at it from a financial perspective that's one thing if you look at it from a emotive uh, place emotional so i feel all this time like i don't own a house yet i think i've had a discussion with you i don't yet own a home i rented i sold my house to start for New London, and I rent now. And that feeling of owning a property has always had a relevance to me. And, and then I will have to a sense of security. Yeah, it's a bricks and mortar sense of security, as opposed to all my money's in the business, it's going to be fine sense of security. Um, and I have a woman who comes and cleans my house, and I've known her for many years. And there's another woman who used to come and clean my house and now she cleans our offices so they've both been in my life a long time they've they've seen me through one of them seen me from my 20s uh through marrying johnny through having lila through world fall apart when johnny my my daughter's father died through all of that and the and the other one there as well so both of them separately in the same day because one of them's not very well so can't work for me at the moment so she was chatting and i said look you need still to earn a salary so just walk the dog every day, but I want to still pay you. And she said, no, you mustn't. You've got to look after your money, Trini. Okay. And I'd had the other lovely Antonia earlier in the day when I'd said, you know, could we just, she said, no, Trini, you must look after your money. And I'm like, both of you are like these mother hens worried about my finances for me. And I said... You've both got to have faith. Mm. Nobody works this hard and and doesn't generate a decent business. I'm doing okay, Maria and Antonia. (laughs) I am doing okay. So I want to be able to support you whilst you're not very well to still have a salary. I can still afford to get somebody else to clean the house. Don't worry. It was a chance in my head to say, Trini, you know, convince them because it's true. I'm not going to go from this to zero. I'm not, you know, I, I put a lot into it Even if I was run over by a bus tomorrow, I feel there would be a future of the business and Lila would be okay. I just kind of feel that. I, you know, I don't think it would die a death overnight. You trust that? I think I trust that. I mean, it's difficult because I am in a business where I'm the face of the business as well as running the business, which is challenging. And I want to get to a place where I don't have to be so much the face of the business. And, you know, already the products in the business speak for themselves. It's difficult that. Many people listening have this sense of things of this is all about that we have to keep going, isn't it? This conversation, all of this is that. But it, but it was interesting. Just that bit of my, my taking the other side of the coin and saying, I will be okay. Please don't think it's going to disappear. Tomorrow.
0: I mean, for people listening and most people listening are women that we need other people to challenge us sometimes to let ourselves know what we really do know. So if you'd been on your own, you might have had a kind of unspoken fear that I don't have enough to buy a house or I don't have enough. But when they actually voiced your fear, it's like, hang on a sec, fuck off. I have I'm done really well. What do you think, as a female founder, as a female entrepreneur, what's your take of the challenges of women in relation to money, making
3: money, not having enough money? Lots of people start clubs in our in our office. And one of them the other day said, I want to start a finance club for women. And, you know, they sent it out to saying, and I said, that's such a brilliant idea because it's knowledge that gives us confidence and power. And power. I think, yeah, I think there is definitely something where knowing you can own, understand and grow your finances, whatever salary you're on. And what the opportunities are and what's safe to do and what isn't, you know, whether it's like I'm saving a little bit each week to I want to invest in something too. I'd like to invest in a startup, whatever your your breadth is to have that financial knowledge. I think I think women generally, generalistically are still behind and having that information is yeah. really powerful because then also if you're a woman in a position where you're thinking. I'd like to leave my partner, but I don't know what that looks like for me financially. You know, that's one of the biggest reasons people don't leave relationships is because they're worried about how they'll manage and how they'll cope. uh, Survive, yeah. So I think it's so important. Anything we start learning becomes suddenly half as scary. I
0: think you're absolutely right that we hand over the power about money to men and that we need to own it for ourselves by informing ourselves and getting knowledgeable. But I wonder if there's a, a barrier to that that's sort of unspoken that we don't even know that we have that somehow there's a kind of default that women can't do money or I, I don't know because i my temptation with money is often just to just you know is I have always worked, so from the moment I was married, I have always worked and earned an income and wanted to kind of have an, enough independence, But the minute it gets scary, I want to hand it over. to other people (laughs) because I feel like I'm an ignorant kid and I just don't get it. So, you know, when I had my own little decorating business, all I would say to my accountant was, tell me how much money I have in my pocket. Is the business okay? You know, I just, (laughs) because it it just scares me somehow. There's something about fear with me with money. I think we need to overcome it.
3: I think it is. There are certain things that keep women from, for example, the gender pay gap at Davos last year, they said it would take 162 years to close the gender pay gap. Okay. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well,
3: that was just on all stats they had brought together for the conference. It was just the most appalling stat that was um, said at that conference. So I do think that we have responsibility if we want to feel empowered at our optimum to overcome things that classically we can say, I'll leave it to them. So In a way, like you're with your partner and, you know, there's washing. Now, you're both not doing anything that we can, but your partner's probably going to say, I'll leave it to her, all right? But he could actually take responsibility for the washing because that would really help to give her a bit of a weekend off as well. So it kind of works both ways. And because one seems to be more involved in wealth and one is domestic, they have a different importance. They don't really. It's about... Knowledge and how to do it, and execution, and impact. So I I just feel like I have a COO and I'm the CEO, all right. And we split up a few things. And there's a lot to do in the business. So I do, I sort of product marketing reports into me, new product development, elements of social marketing and stuff. And Mark is like operations, finance, a little bit of retail stuff we're doing. So we sort of separate it, but. I still really need a total awareness on that. And when I'm most stressed and fearful is when I don't feel I have that full awareness because I know it empowers me. And then it makes me behave badly. You know, it just makes me... Because you're more scared. I'm scared. And and when we go back to that stress thing, so there's this thing you can make this kind of statement to yourself. It's like a declaration. It's a, It's a thing you do as in CEO coaching. All right. So I have it literally here. Brilliant. And it's, what does it say? It says, I am a commitment to leading with balance, respect and strategic follow through, even when I'm stressed. And this whole statement is around how I am when I'm stressed, because when I'm not stressed, like I was looking at how I work with different teams and and how I work on certain days when certain things are in my day compared to other days. So days when it's very stressed days. That's interesting. I don't work so well with the team. Like on a Friday, I do this day where where I do stuff to do with tech and personalization. And I love it. The basis of our business is about making personalization work really well. And I really enjoy the meeting. And it's a Friday afternoon and I'm generally not stressed. They're all going off to summer Fridays. I generally continue on Friday afternoon, but I do nice things like this. They get the best of me. So when I'm stressed, Mm. things can go out the window. So therefore, this goes back to that thing of when I have more knowledge, I'm less stressed. You know, lack of knowledge makes me more stressed. So I worry far more about my finances or I used to before I wrote them in a spreadsheet. And I knew like, I'm going from living in someone's house to renting a house. What's that going to cost me that renting of the house? You know, I have money in the bank. It's not enough to buy the house I want, but it's enough to make me not worry. And to know that if I was knocked over by a bus tomorrow, Lila could buy a flat in London, you know, but it's not the flat we could both live in right now. You know what I mean? So it's like writing those down in black and white really helped me. Before I was starting Trinity London and I realized I couldn't afford to live in my house, I had to do the finance to realize this house you've saved up for for years, that you've overextended got a bigger mortgage got a loan on top just to get the house because the house represented so much to me this is where the house thing is just a bloody theme through my life all right what does that bloody house represent i'd like to say that sort of family life i didn't have but i did have a family life you know my sister julia we had a we had a family life but the house theme has a lot of importance and i grew up in a few different houses because my parents moved country Downsized, upsized, lots of different things. So the consistency of a home, the same home, didn't happen in our, in our family. And probably from when I was a child to an adult, we lived in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 different houses. Okay. Yeah, I'm just adding it up now. And for the first time in my 59 years, I am adding up now. It wasn't like one after the other, but it was like we had one, then we downsized, then we could manage to have a place in the countryside as well as somewhere in London, then we didn't, then we moved to France. Oh, I forgot the two places in France we rented. Sorry, 15, I think. So I think that's God. But really, this is, this is such a revelation. And interestingly, my daughter has experienced in her lifetime the house I lived in with her father, leaving that relationship, uh, I stayed in that house with her. And then I rented somewhere and then we bought the house that I had to sell. And then we live for a nanosecond in something I rented and then I live with my partner and now we're here. So she's had five homes and she's 19. But all through that time, she had this chalet in France um, that I share with my sister. So I hold on to that. I would never sell that because that's the continuity that I think is really important.
0: I am completely like gobsmacked and also gripped in that home roof over our head has so many meanings, doesn't it? It represents so much and how patterns kind of recreate themselves. I mean, five times is much less than 15 times. And that the France represents stability in some ways. It represents continuity and safety. And as human beings, we like familiar. We, We like that pattern of we know where you're going and then you go into the house. And, you know, houses smell. The minute you walk in, you have the smell of all the Christmases and summers and parties and winters and... And I imagine, not consciously at all, but the moving created in you a capacity to pivot and change and jump, which has been probably vital to your success, and also created a longing for a place that you can call home, where you can just sit
3: and be safe, that also represents love in some way. The odd thing in this one, which when I say it doesn't make me happy or unhappy, it makes me feel flat, Julia, is that in September, Lila's going to university and she's going abroad. And I will be here on my own. Now, when we moved in here, a week after I moved here, Lila went away for a week. And I realized when she went away that it was the first time, I think since I was 29 that I'd ever had a night on my own somewhere. Apart from traveling, okay for work. It's like, I like to be on my own when I know at some stage there'll be a return of somebody else. But to be on my own with this, how long am I on my own for? I haven't had yet. I don't know if I'll have, I don't feel I'm somebody who will be on my own for the rest of my life. I'm not somebody who has the capacity for any other person to come into my life because there's too much going on in my life right now. Um, but it's interesting. And I, I had that thought when she went away. It made me realise I really chosen the right home to rent because I felt very safe. Safety is important. And I felt I didn't feel lonely, you know.
0: It's a big transition. Yeah. It's a big life transition, isn't it? That Because it represents a lot of what we've just been talking about, about family and home and love and of course she's coming back but it's the first big step out the door that she'll come back slightly different having lived abroad she'll come back for a temporary amount of time probably you know it's the beginning of her
3: stepping away from direct parenting from you but it's the irony of all of this that by the time i'm in a position where i can get a home that i can keep i won't be keeping home for somebody apart from myself, there's a sort of sad irony to that. I mean, it nearly can make me cry just thinking about yeah. that as an idea. Because all the time, I've always loved the idea of a blended family. You know, I've been at my happiest when my daughter's father and his first wife and his son and Lila and I were all going on holiday together because it made me feel this is family. It's been, you know, I have a, a brother and sister I'm really close to, but there's such I attach such an importance to this sense of a blended family. I love it so much. I really love it. And I was with somebody before I was with um, my previous partner who had four boys. And I think I probably stayed in that relationship a bit too long because I really liked the boys in the family. <laughs> and I thought I'm probably not it's not working out with me and that the adult in the relationship but but I just love what this brings into my life brings into Lila's life I love this and maybe in my last relationship I didn't feel that so much and when you look at why relationships finish not having those connections which you get from a blender family doesn't sustain relationships so well and it's like am I suddenly going to be in September I'm projecting now and I'll Leave this conversation, I'll yeah. shut it down straight away, let me tell you. But of where I'll be at that <laughs> stage where I feel Lila's gone, she's starting her journey by herself. And do I still have a chance for this blended family idea or do I have to just let go of that and think it's okay, it needn't just be about that? I think I need to let go of that as a concept and heal from that to be able to then not let it feel it has such an important impact or that it means that I will be at my happiest if I can create it.
0: I just want to take a quick ad break for my wonderful sponsor, Bamford. Bamford is a lifestyle and well-being brand dedicated to nourishing and nurturing your body and mind. It is also committed to doing things in a mindful way, conscious of its impact on nature and the planet. The change in season might be affecting your sleep patterns, so for anyone having disturbed sleep, Bamford's B silent treatment would be perfect for this time of year. Japanese Shiatsu rocking techniques, a soothing foot bath, and assisted stretches to help release tight muscles are all designed to relax your body and prepare it for a restful night. Bamford are inviting listeners of the podcast to experience their targeted holistic treatments at their wellness spas in London or the Cotswolds and are offering a brilliant 15% off all bookings until the end of the year. Book your treatment online at bamford.com and use the code THERAPYWORKS at checkout on all spa bookings. Also, if you're keen to learn more about the Club by Bamford, a new luxury private members club in the Cotswolds that provides a 360 degrees wellness experience incorporating health, fitness and holistic well-being, please visit bamfordclub.com. A big thank you to Bamford for supporting Therapy Works. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. September is a time associated with transition. For some, it signals the end of summer holidays and the return to regular routines, while for others it represents new beginnings and a renewed sense of purpose. While some of you might embrace this, many might become overwhelmed with all the new pressures you've put on yourself. So if you're one of those people struggling to fall asleep, your brain won't stop worrying. It turns out that one great way to stop these racing thoughts is to talk them through. And there's no better place than therapy to do just that. Talking to a therapist will help you get out of your negative thought cycles, give your brain a break and allow you to find some mental peace. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TherapyWorks today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash TherapyWorks. There's something incredibly poignant. And also, like, deep awareness that you're noticing of when you get to the point in life where you may have time and the capacity to have what you've most longed for, which is time and connection, you know, with a a big blended family, maybe when it's least available to you. And I think psychologically there is something about the paradoxical theory of change, when you can let yourself uh, accept the thing that you don't want could happen. And in finding a way of living with that, that frees you to be open to what does happen, which could be wonderful and it will be whatever it is. But what you're saying, what you don't want is to have this kind of fixed, almost like haunting longing that interferes with actually the possibilities of your present and your future, which who knows what they could
3: be. Mm, Which I think is what a lot of people feel, you know, at this stage. And I don't want to be that classic mother who falls apart when their child leaves home, you know, kind of thing.
0: Well, it's definitely a loss. And I think it's a loss for all of us as parents. And recognising it as a loss and finding ways of supporting yourself through it, I think is really important. But also, if I think about you, like when you set your mind to something, my understanding is that you make it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I've talked about this on the podcast before. There's this space which is a potential, which is a fertile void, which is both a feeling of loss and sadness and longing, and also full of fertility and possibility and trying stuff out and experimenting and letting yourself see iterations of yourself or versions of yourself that you haven't had the capacity before because there wasn't the space. And so not being in a hurry but giving yourself time between the transitional end of one phase of life and the entry into a new chapter in your life I think would be very important. And you tend to go fast to kind of get to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, probably because of the discomfort of not knowing. But it's almost like you're saying to yourself, I don't want to do that this time. I want to be different this time. Yeah, You know, our internal world takes a lot longer than the external change. And so your capacity to adapt, you really learned so young. You have an enormous capacity to adapt. It's almost like you're a greyhound that adapts and runs. (laughs) And so if you can adapt and slow down... That might give
3: you the space to kind of settle rather than keep going to the next race. I had a slow down moment. I was in l a two weeks ago, and I had a car crash. It was interesting to have that something coming in to physically slow you down. I felt my manicness when I was in l a because I thought I'd let me have a holiday with Lila and let me do work and it's very difficult to do both of them. then I'm kind of stressed that I have to get up early and whatever, and then Lila's not getting the enjoyment of the holiday with me and. Looking back at it, she had a nice time. She brought a friend, so I knew that I wanted her to have a nice time when I wasn't there kind of thing. But I did notice through this week, I was very on edge. There was a few things riding on it. And then I came back from a meeting in the valley and I came over the hill and then I turned into my street and the car came right into me at 50 miles an hour and T-boned me into another car. And it was Jesus. quite an impactful crash and all these bags went off and my knee was damaged and everything. I hadn't been that shaken for God, like... I don't know when in my life I'd actually ever been that shaken, but the only other time I felt that visceral impact on my body was when the police came to tell me that Johnny had died. You're suffocated by that attack on the impact of it, you know, and it was really very similar. And I, interestingly, when I say that now, I think then what I did, this is such a thing I do and I literally like pretended I hadn't had a crash in, in my head. So, you know, I called Lila. I was at the end of my street and I said, darling, I've been in an accident. She went from one to 3000. I mean, I could hear the ultimate panic in her voice. And I said, darling, I'm at the end of the street. And I saw her come out the house, which way, which way, you know, like, and then she was running up the street okay. to me and I knew she'd see okay. how bashed up the car was too. Um, and she went from anger to upset to fear, all, like all these emotions came out of her. Yeah. And I sort of thought to myself in, in this whole flash of everything, I have such a responsibility to Lila to make sure I'm okay, to make sure I live. I really have that responsibility to Lila because if I died, the impact to her having lost a parent already is just really, we know what it's like. So I have that responsibility. Then she said, you know, you really should go to this hospital. And I said, no, I think I'm all right. And then I went home and then some people came over to see me and I just put some ice on my body and stuff. And, and, and she kept saying, because I was, you know, we went to the airport and it really hurt." my She said, I don't know why you haven't seen a doctor yet. And I didn't. And I came back here and my knee was swollen twice the size of the other. I didn't see a doctor. Went to the office and I didn't feel great. And then that weekend, um, my stepson's uh, mum, Came around to give me a reflexology. She gave it to me. And halfway through, I felt profoundly uncomfortable. I said, Really? I just want you to stop, Melly. I'm not enjoying this. And she said, I think you should keep going, Tree. I said, No, I'm feeling so uncomfortable. You have to stop. And so she stopped. She said, But just, you know, sleep on it. You'll feel better in the morning. I, I withdrew from her because I just, I kind of thought there's something she's done that's made me feel this uncomfortable. I really withdrew and I said, I'll be fine. But I just kind of wanted to turn out the house. And I love Millie greatly. You shut down. Yeah, I just like shut down and felt uncomfortable all at the same time. You know, she said, Trini, there's probably a bit of that trauma coming out from the crash. And you maybe you just haven't allowed yourself to fully feel what did and didn't happen. You know, it made me slow down. And oddly, since this crash, there's lots of decisions I've got to make about some stuff at the moment where I've, Been taking a long time to make some decisions. And oddly, I'm not getting stressed and angry. I'm just thinking them through more logically. And I think I have, since then, slowed down a bit. Because I feel I'm behaving slightly differently. But then I also, three nights ago, got really angry with Lila over her, just not picking up dog shit and being lazy. And and she said, you're getting so overly angry for the situation, mummy. And I was like, no, I'm not fed up with you not picking up dog shit. You wanted this puppy. It's dog shit in my bedroom. There's piss everywhere. And, and this really inappropriate anger came out. And I did that rejection. You know, when you do the rejection, which your mother gave you, and you think, what yeah. the fuck am I doing to And I just said, please just get out of my room because I want to sleep. I know ah. as I'm saying this, it's the most painful thing I can do to my daughter because it's that rejection of love. And as I'm doing it, I am reminded of the hundreds of times my mother did it. Like, freeze you out. Get out of my face. And she just comes in for more whenever that happens. And then in the end, something breaks it. And then we spend an hour cuddling and chatting through stuff and it's okay. But each of those moments take a toll too, you know. So I felt fully justified in my telling her this stuff. But it was the way I was so angry.
0: Just being your worst self, that you know it and the words are coming out of my mouth and I can hear them and nothing in the world is going to stop me in that moment. (laughs) But what's really powerful is your insight. The connection that you made between Johnny's death and the trauma from the accident and the way that you manage that is a different version of keeping carrying on is keep going. Um, you know, which is to shut down, pretend nothing bad has happened, keep going. But the psychological toll of that is this very heightened state that in some ways distances you from yourself and creates a drum inside you that just feels like Jaws music, isn't it? But also it sounds like you're really wanting to learn from it, like making these decisions with more thought and less haste, mm. it's like you recognized you are actually mortal in a way that you haven't been able to or wanted to before, and that in really recognizing you're mortal, it recognizes your responsibility to Lila, and that what matters more than anything is her. So that reprioritizes how you live your life. Mm-hmm. If my life is to live and thrive and be healthy, and if that's a lens that informs my decision-making in the future, that's an important lens. But I was wondering, and I think people listening for their own relationships, whether being a powerful, successful woman and dating men, there's a, there's a challenge in that, that men find that challenging. I
3: don't know the answer to it. I've experienced it in different ways, that when... I've had a pattern of repetition, actually, because when I was with Liza's father he, and I started dating him, I was recently in recovery, I just getting my, a job. You know, I was really at the beginning of stuff. And then through that, I built up my career. And as that was happening, the opposite, in a way, happened with Johnny. So we had a very short axis point where we were both exactly the same place. And proportionally, it was probably like a 30% was the time Johnny was in that situation, 70% was the time that I was the main breadwinner. Ascending. Yeah. The dynamic was different, and it's... Outwardly, Johnny was never, ever jealous of my success and was my biggest champion, Um, and very proud of me, and always bigging me up. And inwardly, he had a lot of demons, and life took its toll. It was at a time when perhaps I was visually quite well-known. And so... You are on telly all the time. You were on buses, I remember. I mean, you were super famous. I mean, you are now. But it was, that, it was just that visual. So I think that visual impact is different. People might say Trini's husband. You know, in some instances, in some yeah. reporting, Johnny didn't even have a goddamn name, you know. That has an impact on somebody when they're always not known entirely for themselves, but they're known for also their association with somebody. That has an impact. There were other things going on as well there too. It wasn't detrimental to our relationship because there was an underlying other issues which were detrimental to Johnny. Yeah. But they wouldn't have helped. And then I went out with somebody who was drawn to the fact I was famous and um, quite like that. Makes me feel a bit sick hearing that. I didn't really see it. It it didn't last that long, the relationship. There was a little bit of that. And there was a pretense that, that it was the opposite. So then when I met Charles, who I went out with for 10 years, I didn't really know them at the beginning at all. And I'd been filming a lot abroad. So when I actually met them, I didn't know who they were. I knew nothing about art. I literally vaguely knew they'd done advertising, okay? (laughs) <laughs> and so I remember at the first dinner I had, it was like at the end of the evening and somebody had sort of set us up and, and we had this very animated conversation. And then the next day, this woman called me up and said, what do you think? And I said, I found them fascinating, really clever, but I don't know how kind they are. You know, and it was just, it was not a comment against the fact that maybe by in the public's eye, they had been deemed as an unkind person because I didn't know anything about them at that stage. I, it was just a general thing like, is somebody kind? It's like an important thing to me.
0: Yeah, it's an important thing.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's a quality you mind about Exactly. So when I started getting out, there was a lot of press due to things that had happened before I came around. So I was sometimes in that thing of that person's new girlfriend with my name mentioned because I'd been in the public eye a bit, but still in those kind of terms of things. I was still doing telly. I remember I was still filming abroad a lot, but I was already having the idea for Trini London. I think when you're in a relationship, you just have to have a mutual respect for each other over what you both do. And whether that means one person is more publicly doing something or privately doing something, you just have to have that. And when you don't have that, things tip over. And so I've been in relationships where I've been the main breadwinner. I've been the most known person. I've been in relationships where it's equal. And it's also about the place you are in your life. And I think if you're at different places of what you want in your life, that's when you you have to face the challenge of can we get through this stage, or actually are we never going to meet again in that place, you know? And in my last relationship, I thought we're never going to get back to that. Actually, we're both actually going in slightly different trajectories and and different aims of what you want, how you want yeah, to live your life, different aims, and I kind of. You know, I sometimes do project, you know, there's something about familiarity. So there's yeah. that whole cycle yeah. within a family unit yeah. of endless new family stories and but it's the same big family scene. And with me, I feel I've had this smaller family scene. One thing I'm nostalgic about is the memories of times together. So when you do then end a whole relationship, you lose those talking about those memories you've had together so you you lose this chunk it's like use a little bit of the the computer code you know that makes up your your self
0: you lose your shared story so you have the story of the holiday in yourself but you lose the sort of common narrative
3: family story together yeah, that is, is very important to you. Yeah, it's just, so therefore that it's chunk. Teasing. So, you know, I obviously have those 10 years with Lila and, but I also, there were lots of people I didn't see doing those 10 years. So what's also very interesting is that when you start a business, you give it your all. So I literally had time for Lila and Charles. Um, so what went was my relationships with my friends and also to an extent with my family. And that was the sacrifice I chose to make to build a business up. But it meant that people's lives move forward. I see a lot more friends now. And and you kind of get through that. You are at that moment where you think, God, we'll never have enough memories together that I can recapture what that friendship used to be. And that was my fear. And I remember in the last three or four years, I was thinking that a lot of girlfriends I'd be very close to, and I'd miss these chunks of their children's lives. And when you miss chunks of your friends' children's lives, you feel detached from them because they're going to be talking about that a lot and want to have people in their life who have that shared memory. And then I there's some people I reconnected with where, you know, I've sort of recently got to know their kids at this older age, and I only knew them very young. And like this summer, they invited us to go on a family holiday together. And I thought you can get things back because their kids are adorable. Lila's friends with one of them who's a few years younger. But I just thought, actually, when we think we've lost things, they can come back. And you can be in that moment when you just feel... I'm doing all this, I'm doing this for Lila, but I'm sacrificing the sense of memories of my life because they're becoming very binary. But it's like, you know, you have a really bad cut, you think it will get a scar and you realise actually it can heal up.
0: We have this incredible capacity as human beings to take the good from the past and reinvest it and create our present and our future. And all of us are leaving things behind all the time, whether we're in the same family system or not. But what seems incredibly important is recognizing in your being what really matters to you in this moment now, and that that is friendships, that is relationships, that you sacrifice a lot for the business. And now linking to the car crash and what you're learning from that, this feels like another way in to say, Maybe I can recognize that I've got this far with the business and I can slow down and give myself a bit of space to invest time and me in friendship and relationships and building memories rather than in Trinity London because Trinity London is secure enough that you will have me and I'll work hard, but I don't have to give it
3: 150% of myself. And I think at some stage with the business, you have to make that decision. Because I started this business later in my life. Somebody said, you start this business later in your life. And I had to um, correct them and say later in my life, not late in life. Do you think 50 is late in life? You know, When I meet lots of people who've had businesses, they've really grown and they just say, you've got to remember that you never die thinking, I wish I worked harder.
0: So we're coming to the end. If there is a last thing that you feel like you've learned from
3: all that you've gone through, what do you think that is? we've talked a lot about the past today, but I also think it's really important not to live in the past. I really do. And it's oddly one thing I've learned from Charles. Yeah, And maybe that was in a way that he did it well or not well, but living in the past too much means that you're not that happy with your present and the past was a better time. So it makes you feel even that distance between the two. And instead it would be I think it's always more beneficial to think, what can I do in my present to make me want to think about my present most of the time? Um, Or not what could be or what has been, you know? And I think what could be and what has been is like looking and thinking, comparing your inside with somebody's outside. I just don't think it goes down a great place.
0: Yeah. So trust in yourself and your present right now. Mm -hmm. That's a lovely way to end. Trini Woodall. Good luck with the publication of your book, September the 14th, Fearless. And it's going to be a brilliant, brilliant book.
3: It's going to be a good manual to help you on things. Oh, good. (laughs) I love talking to you.
0: Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week. The moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. I was so moved by my conversation with Trini. She was courageous and open, and I think we really kind of moved in the session. And I wondered what your thoughts are.
1: I really loved the way Trinia so authentically herself, and how much that comes yeah, across without sort of speaking to anything specific that she said. But there was a lot of the things that really resonated with me. One was to do with women and money and knowledge, and how I definitely feel like as a woman, I'm a child when it. Comes to finances and I just put a blindfold on. And I really think that as well as teaching more about emotions and body regulation and mindfulness in schools, they should also really teach more about money and how to look after your money. And like, I don't think I even really knew what a mortgage was until I was like in my 30s, which is ridiculous. And
0: because you rented for for decades, and also
1: embarrassing. So I really resonated. (laughs) with that and how I think knowledge really is power.
2: I had the same. I, I'd, I'd put a note, why aren't finances taught, taught in schools? And then I thought I'd love a finance club rather than a book club. I mean, I love my book club. It's not that I don't want a book club. But to have a group of women that regularly sat down and go, how do we do this? Because there's so many questions, things I don't understand that I assume other women might.
0: Given that the, the theme through our whole conversation was about fear and how to protect ourselves from fear. And that thing around money, as you're talking, is, of course, when we're in a fearful state, our brain doesn't work. We can't think properly. So even if you did know anything about money, when you're kind of grappling like that, anything you did know goes out the window. So it does need to be a foundational understanding that is with us all the time. Mm. But also there is a bias. You're saying it's about women because I mean, I imagine there are lots of men that don't know about money.
1: Yes, I think that there are. I do also think that sometimes what can happen in lots of different ways in relationships, I think Trini referred to it, is that it's like you have this stuff and I have this stuff. And I think often in sort of gender stereotype relationships, the man is like, I took care of the finances and the woman is like taking care of the home actually doesn't happen like that in my marriage in our family I think both of us feel like (laughs) we don't know what we're doing great (laughs) um so I think we just sort of try and figure it out together I think that is the more sort of stereotypical norm I think isn't it and also one that can emerge post-babies I think
2: in my experience with couples and I know and and my own marriage it's like before babies everyone's just earning their own thing and you're quite independent or you're in charge of your own finances but if you end up being the primary carer which still is very much majority women then the primary earner tends to then be the other partner how easy you then slip into those roles where you sort of hand that thing over to the other person Um,
0: yeah I think that's a really good point what else came up for you
1: when Trini was talking about? reminders of the past coming into the present. So I think for her, she was talking about it in a trauma sense of that reminder that she had of Johnny's death. And I think obviously a trauma is a really specific thing where it really stays in your body and comes back in this really visceral way. But it really made me think kind of more generally about how what has happened in the past and the messages that we've been given really inform our reactions to the present and I used to teach this parenting class called Circle of Security. And they had this really fantastic accessible way of illustrating that, which was called shark music. And they did this thing where they, showed video like from your viewpoint kind of thing of like walking down to a beach and there's lovely calm music playing in the background and you just see like the waves lapping and you're like ah lovely like oh I feel like I'm on holiday and then they show exactly the same video footage but in the background instead of having calm lovely music they have like the Jaws soundtrack which is like. Da, 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 and suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, this beach is super threatening, like something terrible is about to happen. And I think that what it is illustrating is how you see an event and respond to event is largely based on the way that you're perceiving it. And this can be particularly true in your child's behavior. So your child can be presenting with a really developmentally typical, safe, maybe challenging behavior but the way you react to it if it's your shark music then you're going to have a very big reaction to it so for example say you have a super controlling toddler which like most toddlers are then but you've also had in your past a very controlling relationship with a parent or a partner and then mother Mother. (laughs) you aren't really controlling
0: (laughs) no okay just
1: and then suddenly you've got this toddler who's bossing you around and saying no and doing all the controlling things that toddlers do but if you've had that experience in the past then you might have this really big reaction to what is a very developmentally typical behavior because your shark music is playing and so you might go like oh my gosh it's turning into my dad my whatever and i think it could be really helpful to think about actually what is my shark music what is the thing that sort of just presses a button inside and stops me seeing the reality because. I'm actually being so informed by my past,
2: and I thought to her honesty that you referenced before, Mum and M, that thing of sort of comparison is the thief of joy, by actually hearing what someone's insides are like, that little vignette of her with her daughter saying, oh, "I did the one thing that I remember my mother doing, or noticed that, I just so recognized that for myself, with my own children, and I really remember Mum, once you sent a little like clip on a whatsapp that just had a little image i can't remember exactly what the image is but the quote was i used to think i was a nice person until i had children <laughs> 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 i thought that was like it's so true you know <laughs> it's so true and now with my children i get so mad or i can do things like that is a like really badly behaved sophie um you know and it is those moments isn't it and when you get triggered or you've had a bad day and your stress levels are up. And I really recognize that. And what you always say, and I find comforting is the sort of power of repair Mm. that you might act out your sharp music. That doesn't mean you can't go then and repair that moment with your child, that time or later on.
1: Repair when you are properly calm. Don't try and repair too soon. Because I think Mm. sometimes you just want to fix it and then you're like, you feel bad and just, and that doesn't usually work so well.
0: Yeah, or when they're not calm
1: enough Mm. either. Yes, also
0: that. The other thing that I thought, particularly the stages of life that you're at, but actually has been really true for me, both the symbolic and heart image sense of having a home, having a roof over your head, and how she talked about that. And in some ways that it kind of framed this idea that maybe all of us have, the safety is having your own home, whatever that looks like. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that.
2: For me, that just speaks to an anticipated state, (laughs) as in we have bought a home and not moved into our home. And I definitely have the fantasy that that's how it's going to feel. And I'm sure for many people that's true. You know, that's some sense of, oh, that's going to be my base and that's my security. But I don't actually know if that's true yet because we haven't lived as a family in our our own home before.
1: Actually, Sophie and I had this conversation a few weeks ago, our house as a family, first house, we have lived in. And I've just been like so boringly excited about it and telling Sophie how amazing it was. And Sophie was like, Yeah, but if there was like something fundamental wrong in your family, moving into a lovely house that's your house, obviously it doesn't fix a really deep problem or like problems in relationships. Mm. For me, having rented for years and years and years and years and also having moved house. I want to say like seven times in the last eight years. Having somewhere where I know we're going to be, at least for, you know, the foreseeable future, it it does give me like an internal security.
0: I went to this um, trauma conference at the weekend and I was thinking about the polyvagal system, you know, where you're in your autonomic aroused state or your ventral vagal safe state or dorsal kind of shutdown state. And I think there is something... That enables you to feel safe and calm if you're securely in a house that you feel, you know, you, you both have sort of big mortgages and things. It doesn't, it isn't simple, but this feeling of, I have a front door that I can go to, a sense of safety that the, you can leave the world outside and this is mine. And of course, it can go for all sorts of reasons, but I think there is something about it that is very important that she illustrated
1: i think so as long as you feel safe in your home which i think it's a privilege Mm. to have home as a place of safety but if you have that then yeah i think it really helps i've been reading a lot about polyvagal theory it's made me think that maybe i want a therapy dog in my room yes i
2: just had a question for you mum because, oh, Lord. Uh, no, I just thought it was interesting that you and Trini had this, I guess, sort of moment of resonance on this part of the sort of striving parts of your personality oh, yeah. and the kind of push, push, push. And that, that for both of you, as it seemed to me, had been like one of your greatest strategies of life. It's been like to keep going when things get tough or push to the next thing and a real sense of self-efficacy in that that had really helped you through difficult times. And also then we're sort of wrestling with the letting go of that. And you were saying you'd been trying that for the last year. And I just wondered what it has been like in that process of trying to put it aside. Because on the one hand, I'm thinking, I'm imagining, well, maybe that's quite nice. And also at the same time, I'm thinking, well, often being busy is a distraction. And being less busy can allow more difficult feelings to come in. You have more space to feel day-to-day stuff. And I just wondered what your reflections are for having to done it, trying it for a year. How easy has it been?
0: My answer, my honest answer, because I can't lie with you two, because you both call me on it anyway, is my striver is still really busy. And it kind of works for me. It makes me, I'm not unhappy. I'm pretty happy.
2: And also old strategies die hard. Not that you're trying to kill it off, but it's very hard to change habits of a lifetime.
0: So I just really want to thank Trini for being such a brilliant first guest for our new season. And to all of you listening, I hope you're enjoying the beginning of our new season. And if you think this is relevant to a friend or you just want to share it anyway, do please subscribe and share to those around you and tune in for our episode next week.